The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome again, everybody, loyal listeners all around the world. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, a slight departure from plan, we've always got to be able to roll with the punches, right? We've got to be able to go with the flow. We've got to be able to chill. We've got to be able to take it as it comes. And uh, I had intended that uh, this particular show uh, was going to be devoted to discussing the kind of men that women like surrendering to, the kind of men that women want to join their fortunes with. But um, after a, uh, a number of days on preparing that particular show, which I'm going to postpone either to, to next week or the week after, uh, I realized that I had to talk about something entirely different. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I was selected this past week for special treatment. I was selected for the kind of treatment that American universities have been handing out to speakers of whom they disapprove. And so there I was scheduled this last Tuesday night to speak for uh, a college in Northern California. And for more details on it, by the way, uh, you can go to my website where Susan Lappin wrote a Susan's Musings uh, based entirely on exactly what happened this past Tuesday night. And the title of that Musings, the, the, the one you're going to be looking for on the page is... Hello, I've got a phone. The Kenyatta College Core Curriculum, Bullying. Uh, the Kenyatta College Core Curriculum, Bullying. And that was the dulcet tones of Susan Lappin you heard. Um, so head over to RabbiDanielLappin.com and take a look at the uh, uh, at Susan's Music for the full story. You'll also find it on Facebook, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, also on Twitter, Daniel at Daniel Lappin. But uh, I can do just a little bit better than that because I can take you right there into the main theater at this college in one of the most privileged corners of one of the most privileged states in the country. Uh, this is the San, San Mateo, uh, not, not far from Hillsborough, this not far, it's in Palo Alto is around the corner, Stanford University around the corner. We're talking about a pretty Tony neighborhood. And so, you know, the least I thought was that uh, I would be uh, treated. <laughs> oh, forget it. You know, you know, I didn't expect that. But uh, what actually did happen is rather extraordinary. And, and, and instead of just describing it to you, uh, I'm going to play it to you. So what you're going to hear is that the next two segments uh, are the first uh, part of the lecture. 
when you come to the, um, uh, the end of segment two, that's when, during the last few minutes of segment two, you're going to hear the disruption. And the disruption went on, but then I, I end section two uh, of the podcast right there because I didn't see the point in subjecting you to 20 minutes of uh, five shrill harridans shrieking their heads off. Um, <laughs> and the, it didn't even make any sense. That's the crazy thing. The things they were screaming about was education is a right, not just for the rich and white. I mean, I, that wasn't the subject of my ta talk. The subject of the talk was um, that uh, making money is moral. That, that was the assertion. Uh, so, you know, you'd have thought that they'd attack me on that, but no, it wasn't on that. And then uh, the attack was that I'm a fascist. But what was, what was quite amazing was that 300 people in the audience were held hostage by five or six young women holding up placards, standing in their seats, shrieking at the top of their voices, and there's absolutely nothing to be done. And you know what was really disturbing was that uh, university administrators, senior university administrators, who had told me, I'd been told they were, were coming to the lecture, were there. And um, half a dozen university security men were there and had been told to stand down to do absolutely nothing. Um, really, what, what these folks all need is a Rabbi Daniel Lappin course on the perils of profanity. And uh, that's exactly what you can get. Special price download on the website. Head over to RabbiDanielLappin.com and look for a, uh, a beautiful program on how to improve your eloquence, your ability to articulate fluently. It's called The Perils of Profanity. It's not just about profanity. Uh, but it's about how to truly expand your ability to communicate. So take a look at the perils of profanity. The download is, uh, I think it's only $5, and you can just get hold of that. And, you know, maybe you can supply it to some of these um, uh, demented cretins on the university campus who are uh, so incapable of even uh, formulating an argument <laughs> At one point, uh, in an attempt to sort of diffuse the situation, I said to one of the, the girls from the stage, I said, look, if you've got a question, go ahead and ask it. Well, she was so flustered, and she started babbling on about the pharmaceutical industry. You'll hear it all. It's, it's coming right up. So the first segment coming right up, pretty straightforward, no, uh, no interference, uh, straightforward lecture. Section two starts uh, with, you know, the lecture continues. And as we come to the end of section two, that's when it goes completely nuts. And uh, I will join you again after that uh, in, in real time to tell you what happened next. I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, head over also at rabbidaniellappin.com to read Susan's musings for a full written account from Susan's perspective. Yes, she was there. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. If you or a loved one is struggling with drug or alcohol addiction and are serious about getting help, call us now at 855-820-2797. You can get clean and sober in as little as seven days. Your insurance company may cover 100% of all costs with little to no out-of-pocket expenses. Our trained addiction specialists are available 24-7 and all calls are free and confidential. 
Just call us at 855-820-2797. How much longer are you going to suffer with addiction? Let us find you the best treatment center that fits your unique needs. Call us now at 855-820-2797. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. They required it. Thank you very much indeed, Tommy. I appreciate that and wish my mom was alive to hear it. And um, uh, thank you for the gracious introduction. Uh, also, uh, thank you to the academic advisor, uh, Professor Anna Budd. Um, I, I have no doubt uh, that my entire outlook will be enormously enriched um, after the opportunity of spending some time with her this evening. And. Um, uh, also, I want to express uh, gratitude to Young America's Foundation, an organization for which I have the highest esteem and uh, which I've had the uh, privilege of being associated with for quite a long time. Uh, is Amy Lutz here this evening? There she is. Thanks for coming. And uh, thank you for inviting me and working together with Tommy and uh, the folks here at, uh, at the college. I appreciate that very much indeed. And um, there's an ancient Jewish rule I tell folks usually um, that requires the speaker's wife to be situated out of sight of the speaker. Now, this is entirely made up, but entirely necessary. And the reason is because my dear wife, who did me the enormous favor of homeschooling our seven children, um, has heard, not this speech, because I've never given exactly the speech, but the themes and the ideas she has heard many, many times over the years. And she has a very honest face that reveals what she's thinking. <laughs> and because she holds my entire ego in the palm of her hand, when she hears me say something that is not perhaps quite as effectively articulated as I did last week in, in uh, Niagara Falls, then her face will show considerable dismay, which puts me off my stride. <laughs> and so I usually prefer, if she is located for the speech, in some side room somewhere. But you didn't do that, in spite of my request. <laughs> She's right there. Okay, that's quite enough of that. Uh, thanks for coming, Susan. I appreciate it, really. Uh, it's no fun traveling without her, so, um, so here we are. Uh, let me start off telling you about um, a guy called Samuel Colt. Samuel Colt... Uh, was building revolvers in Connecticut in the early 1800s. Now, let me tell you how he used to do this. He had a big oak table, and he had six guys sitting around the table. And this table was in a workshop, and around the perimeter of the workshop were things like drill presses and vices and uh, saws and all kinds of metal and steelworking machinery. And then the guys would sit around the table, and each one would get up 
and find a piece of bar stock and they take it over to the drill press and drill it down the center to make a barrel and then they'll take another piece of metal and, uh, and put it on the lathe and turn it and then put holes in it and it'll be a, a rotating chamber and then they'd make, each one would make a trigger assembly. Some of them were slower, some of them were faster. But whenever each man finished a revolver, he'd sign his name on the bottom of it and put it in a basket in the middle of the table. And each man used to finish a revolver in about a day and a half. And so over the course of a day and a half, there'd usually be about six revolvers finished. And during the, the course of a week, there'd be, you know, 15 or 16 or 20 revolvers. And then Mr. Samuel Colt would come along, pick up the basket, and then he'd count each revolver according to the, the name signed on it. And then he would pay each worker according to the number of revolvers that he made during the course of that week. That was how the business went. In 1776, a few decades before this, a guy called Adam Smith, a Scottish religious thinker, philosopher, and what today we think of as an economist, although that term didn't sort of really exist back then, uh, he wrote a book called An Inquiry into the Nature of the Wealth of Nations. A very earth-shaking, uh, significant book in uh, economic philosophy. In that book, he came up, he was the first person to come up with this idea of specialization. And what he said was, he said, look, you can never beat anyone at his own game, which, by the way, is a really, really useful thing for, for, for each of you to know. If you ever come up against a professional, in no matter what field it is, if you are an amateur and he, is, he or she is doing this day after day, day after day, year after year, they really are better at it than I am. It took me a long time to realize this. No, seriously, I mean, I used to enjoy repairing my car. And I, I thought I was pretty good at it. And it took a long time before I wised up and discovered that my nice German engineer, the, the guy who works at the auto house, could fix my car much, much better than I could, much quicker than I could, releasing me to use my time for things that I did best and got paid for. And it took me a long time to realize. I used to think, hey, you know what? I've worked on my car for a couple of years. Yeah, maybe. You still don't know what you're doing. Because he's been doing it every day for 20 years. Professionals, you can't beat. And so Adam Smith realized that if people would specialize on a particular task, they would become far better at it than they were when they were doing a whole bunch of things at the same time. So Samuel Colt reads about the discoveries of Adam Smith and he reorganizes his factory, not to the pleasure of those six workers. But here's what he said. He said, gentlemen, you're not going to like this very much, but I'm the boss, I'm still going to do it this way. And uh, I want you to stick with me for three months. At the end of three months, we can reevaluate it. We'll talk about how we feel about it then. But here's what we're going to do. 
And he said uh, to the first guy, he said, Abel, you are going to make barrels. Bob, you are going to make trigger assemblies. Charlie, you are going to make the rotating chamber. David, you are going to make uh, the, the handle. And, um, and the last two, he said, and guys, your job is to assemble everything together. Now, you all have to work much more accurately than you used to because you were each making one revolver at a time. And so you could adjust and file and saw and drill a little bit till everything fitted. But now, the last two guys are going to reach into the basket in front of you. They're going to pull out one barrel, one trigger, one handle, one rotating chamber, uh, one um, sights assembly, and then they're going to put it all together. Everything has to fit. This was a big breakthrough. It's the first time this ever happened. And so Samuel Cole said, I'm going to give you jigs so everything lines up. Every piece is going to be interchangeable. Big, big breakthrough. They do it, and what happens? The next thing that happens is no longer are they making five or six um, uh, revolvers every day or so. Now, all of a sudden, they're making three times the number of revolvers. At the end of the first week, Samuel Colt comes along to pay all the men, and each man gets literally three times the number of dollars that he got last week and the week before and the week before that and the week before that. They couldn't believe their eyes. The next week, even better. They're getting better at what they do. And from then onwards, not only Samuel Colt, arms concern in Connecticut, but uh, factories all around the Northeast. In those days, factories were mostly driven by water, water mills, water wheels. And uh, everybody switched to doing this. Now... The question I have to ask is, why does this work? And what's the idea? I get the idea that people get better at what they do, and if you have people doing the same thing, people can do it faster, and the whole uh, process of building is much more efficient. I get that. It makes a lot of sense. But don't forget, I'm a Jewish rabbi, and my information comes from a book that shaped Western civilization. It's called the Bible. And some of you may be familiar with it. Some of you may not be familiar with it. Some may know it and, uh, and read it and, be and, and really know it. Others may be completely disinterested. It doesn't matter. I don't really care whether you regard it as the Word of God or if you regard it as a fascinating book of which more copies have been printed than of any other book in all of human history. I don't know whether you are intrigued by the irony that uh, before he passed away at the end of the 18th century, uh, the French philosopher Voltaire predicted that within a hundred years the Bible would be completely out of print and unavailable. In one of those supreme moments that persuaded me personally that God has a really, really good sense of humor, um, the house in which Voltaire lived for most of his life um, was sold to the Geneva Bible Society. <laughs> and they set up a printing press in the basement of the house from which so far 
180 million Bibles have been sent all around the world, all from Voltaire's house. How many of you in this room, just as a matter of interest, own a copy of the complete works of Voltaire? Wow. Just as a matter of interest, how many of you happen to own a Bible? Wow. Interesting. So, in that case, I feel comfortable telling you something about the Bible. End of the book of Genesis, here's something really interesting. Uh, Father Jacob, who is otherwise known as Israel, um, again, I'm not going to go into the details are irrelevant. Right now, I only want to talk about the economic impact. Um, Father Israel is about to die at the end of the book of Genesis, and he gathers his uh, 12 sons all around him, and he says, come near me, I want to bless you all before I leave. And it then takes about 30 verses, because he goes on and on and on and on and on. He goes son by son. Reuben, this is what you're going to be doing, and, uh, and uh, Levi, this is you, and Judah, this is you, and Dan, this is you, and Zebulun, this is you. This, this takes a lot of time, and not to mention a lot of ink. If I were writing the Bible, here's what I would have said. Jacob drew near to death. He called his sons together to bless them before he went home to the Lord. And he said, boys, I've lived for 147 years. Most of the time was fine. A lot of the time, some of you were a real pain in the neck. But anyways, God bless you all. I'm out of here. <laughs> One verse. Not 30 verses. I'd be a fabulous editor. <laughs> You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. As if this wasn't enough, the end of the book of um, Deuteronomy, Moses is about to die. He's just led the Israelites 40 years through the desert. God says, you know what, you screwed up a couple of times, I'm not letting you go into the promised land, uh, but... That's how it is. I will let you give a final blessing to the, to the Israelites. Moses starts again, same thing, tribe by tribe. Tribe of Reuben, uh, tribe of Levi, tra tribe of Judah, tribe of uh, Gad, tribe of Dan, all the way through. Again, you know, a whole chapter. If it was me, one verse. Moses climbed the mountain and spoke to the children of Israel and he said, it's been a tough 40 years. You are a tough bunch. I want to tell you that. You really have been a tough bunch. If I wasn't your leader, I'd be an anti-Semite. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. I'm circumcised. And, um, so, but it's been 40 years, I'm going home to the Lord, God bless you, take you into the land, from now on you're Joshua's problem, not mine. <laughs> One verse, instead of 30, 
What's going on there? Well, it's very simple. In order to explain, I have to tell you about something very clever that my wife did. There was uh, a time where two of my daughters wanted to try out school instead of homeschooling at home. So off they went to a boarding school in another city. And her concern, and mine was too, that she didn't want them to lose closeness with one another. You know what I mean? Kids, they've been very close, siblings, homeschooling, a lot of family togetherness. And then what happens? They're now going off to this big bustling school with a whole lot of students, and these two sweet little Lappin girls are going to find themselves now disconnected with, from everybody, they're going to, they're going to uh, make new friends, they're not going to stay as close to one another as they used to. So here's what Susan did. Um, Susan took two pieces of paper and she wrote a letter to each of them putting an alternate word on each paper. What ended up with, each girl then received a letter in the mail, in, completely unintelligible, because it's got every second letter. Every second word, pardon me, every second word. The only way for them to read a letter from home and catch up on all the news from the family was to get together. <laughs> and they had to put their papers together and read them together and they'd have gales of laughter as they, they were giggling at how silly mommy was for doing it like this, but it achieved our goal to make absolutely sure that twice a week they got together. You may be getting a clue as to what's going on with Israel and with Moses. In order to really get it clear, can we jump back to Connecticut, early 19th century? I want to ask you to think through what happened in the old, original Samuel Colt revolver factory when one of the men didn't show up for work. What was the attitude of the other five guys? Didn't care, exactly! They didn't care. Why should they? All it meant is that at lunchtime there'd be a little more beer for them. <laughs> Who cares? Get it? Now, how about the new model of the Samuel Morse revolver plant? What happens now? A guy doesn't show up for work and everybody, the other five guys, say, you know, where's David? I don't know. Quickly, we've got to go over to his house and see if he's all right. And they run over to the house and they say, David, are you okay? And he says, yeah, I'm okay, but my wife isn't well and I, I need, I, I just, I couldn't come to work. All the kids are taken care of. What do the other five guys say? Tell us what to do. We'll help you. We'll take care of it. Because we can't do anything without you. Now, just put yourself in the mind of a religious perspective, regardless of whether you're religious or not. But put yourself in the mind of trying to understand which would God prefer? human relationships where we care for one another and where our entire identities are shaped by the people in our lives and the more different they are from us the more they think in a different way the more they contribute the more they make us grow the more they make us into the kind of people we want to become and so specialization is another way of situating human beings in a way that they need one another. If I made all my own clothing and all my own shoes and all my own needs, I wouldn't need anybody. 
But I spend a lot of time on my feet. And I found it very difficult to find shoes that are comfortable to stand in for a long period of time. But I did. I found a pair of shoes. And I literally pray for the welfare of Alan Edmonds Shoe Company. <laughs> I do. Because I really don't want them to go out of business. Companies go out of business, you know. It does happen. And I really don't want to start looking for a pair of shoes that works for me. The only way that happens is if I didn't make my own shoes. And that is why Israel blessed his 12 sons separately. To make sure that each son would need the others. When you have a neighborhood, a society, a community, a culture, where everybody is a subsistence peasant, where everybody takes care of only his own needs, each and every person grows his own potatoes and his own wheat, and each person keeps dairy cattle, and each person keeps sheep, and each person weaves his own cloth for clothing. What's the relationship between everybody? They no relationship, or at best, they see one another as competitors for resources. But when you set up a system of specialization, now all of a sudden we're allies in the struggle to wrest a living from an often reluctant earth. We're allies because I can't do it without you and you can't do it without me. So it's no surprise to a religious person. It's no surprise that God creates a beautiful economic incentive. He says, if you specialize, I'll let you make three or four or five or maybe ten times the money you were making before. And that gives you more options in life. That's a good thing. In 1953, in May of 1953, an interesting thing happened. A guy called Ro um, um, uh, Sir Edmund, he, didn't, he wasn't Sir then, Edmund Hillary, went with his friend Sherpa Tenzing Norgay up to the very top of Mount Everest. Never been done before. And they came down. It was an unbelievable achievement because all the indications up to then were that no human being could make it. Nearly 30,000 feet, very little, very thin air, almost no oxygen. The weather is appalling. The conditions are terrible. It couldn't be done. But Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay did it. I wonder if any of you know approximately how many people have climbed Everest since then. Would you say 10, would the number, the order of magnitude be closest to 10 people since then, 100 or 1,000? Yeah, it's more than, a, it's well over 1,000 people have climbed Mount Everest. I'm not saying I could do it. Okay, you didn't need to laugh at that statement. I expected a more sympathetic, oh, come on. But many of you here could well do it if you set your mind to it, if you wanted to. So many people are doing it that there's actually, did you know there's a litter problem on Everest? People drop uh, candy bar wrappers because it just takes too much energy to bend out and pick them up or do something else with them. But um, there's a lot of people doing it. Why didn't anybody do it before May 1953? Why, uh, why did it wait till Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay? Why did nobody do it till then? Because they didn't they didn't believe that it could be done. Wow. Only one year later, May 1954, 
a guy called Roger Bannister does something which not only didn't anyone think could be done, but people were sure would kill an athlete in the attempt. A four-minute mile was not possible. Do you have a four-minute miler at this college? I bet you do. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Do you have a, an athletics program here? Yeah, you probably do. How many people have run a four-minute mile since uh, Roger Bannister did in May 1953? Thousands. Not saying I could. <laughs> you never learn, do you? That was a test. All right. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Uh, why didn't anyone run a four-minute mile before? Because they didn't believe that it could be done. Nobody can truly succeed at any activity that deep in their hearts they consider to be morally reprehensible. Nobody can ever succeed at any activity that deep in your heart you believe you cannot do. The day will come for all of you when you will want to have a few dollars in your pocket. The day will come eventually. I don't know what the circumstances will be, but the day will come when you will want to make a few dollars. And I have to tell you that as a group of, of fairly privileged Americans in the sense that you are at a, at a top-rate school and you are on a track which is going to lead you to desirable academic credentials, I have to tell you that it is extremely unlikely that anybody in this room is going to make their money as a result of incremental raises in the minimum wage. <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. You're all going to find a way of making money. And you're going to do it through some form of economic interaction called business. You may accept a position in exchange for a salary. Uh, you might work for somebody. You might go into partnership with somebody. Whatever it is. But pretty much everyone here is going to find a way to make some enviable money. Your ability to do that is distinctly handicapped if deep in your heart you believe that making money is immoral. And so what I'd like to do with the rest of the time that I have available this evening, let me check to see, okay, what I'd like to do in the rest of the time I have available is give you as much as I can in the form of valuable tips, tools, techniques, and strategies that are a part of ancient Jewish wisdom that have been a part of Jewish economic success, not only in great countries like the United States, but also in oppressive regimes, and not only in good times, but also in shockingly bad times. There is a reason, and what it is are things that we want to talk about, things I want to impart to you. Because if you have a clearer sense of what money really is, your ability to function with it and your ability to make it when the time comes to make it is going to be incredibly enhanced. That's what I'd like to share with you now. And so, 
Let's start off with a story of uh, a home on a beautiful island in the Pacific Northwest belonging to my wife and myself. It's a home situated right in the middle of this island and the island is in a beautiful lake in a beautiful area in a beautiful state state of Washington and what Would you like to just tell me how much time you need for this so I can carry on when you're done? We've sat through your talk. You justify Gentile people. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay, listen, we're... We're not going to enter into uh, uh, a cross-argument here. You've had your say. We've heard you. If you have anything new to add to it, I don't want you to repeat yourself because we get bored real quick around here. So if you've got anything new to add, say it now. I'm giving you a chance, and then I'd like to continue doing what people expect me to do here now. You say that making money can never be committed if you, deep in your heart, have a moral compass. So how do you justify the contortion of our health care system, of the pharmaceutical industry, to make poor people die because they can't afford health care? Great question, and if you sit down, I will answer it. Sit down, put away your poster now. If that was a genuine question, I'm, I'm taking you at your word, I would like to answer that. I will get to it. Sit down now. Go on. This is a real novel idea. We have a conversation. Right, but the audience is seated, the speaker is standing. So why don't you sit down now? That would be the polite thing to do. You've had your say. I've, I've listened to your question. Sit down now and let's carry on. Shall we do that? Come on, folks. Let's not make this any more ridiculous than it really is. Do you want to become... All right. Are you sitting down? If, if you ask a question, I presume it's because you ask it in good faith. That's what I thought. But right? So you want an answer, don't you? So sit down, I'll tell you the answer. You're only going to stand and make yourself uncomfortable. Don't do it. Sit down. Come on. I thought your question was asked in good faith. You can still answer the question again. Yeah, I would like you to sit down. Okay, thanks. All right, in that case. Okay, believe me, uh, this course, uh, which is being violated now in a way which is it's laughable and pathetic. So, okay, that's enough. Good. Okay, it's very nice, and maybe you can hold a lecture in another room telling folks all about it. Okay? But right now, this is my lecture. And you're being very, very rude. Not only to me, but to your fellow students.
So, I've got a story is... <laughs> All right. And, uh, folks, I held the time to take care of that. That is driving it. And in order to explain that, I have to clarify. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. My sister-in-law just had a baby boy, uh, and that's great news. But with that great news comes a lot of cost. Uh, and she works in the medical industry, so, you know, you can guess her student loans are gigantic. These things can completely wipe you out if you don't get a handle on them. How do you do that? Credible.com. Credible is a private online marketplace of lenders. It's simple. You just go there, answer a few questions, and right away, you get real rates, not ranges of rates, from multiple lenders competing to refi your student loans at historically low rates. Your data is secure. It's not going to affect your credit. And thankfully, you will not get spammed. Credible saves the average student almost $19,000. 19 grand for a new car. Take a great vacation every year. Why not try it? For a limited time, Blaze listeners get an extra $200 when they refi with Credible. Go to Credible.com slash Blaze. Credible.com slash Blaze. It's Credible.com slash Blaze. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Okay, back with you in real time now. As uh, I look back... Uh, with the hindsight of 48 hours of, of what was happening at uh, this college in Northern California on Tuesday night. Um, and so at that point, Bedlam broke out. And again, university administrators sitting serenely, uh, watching not an expression on their faces. Security people sort of shifting from leg to leg, not exactly knowing I mean, they've been told to do nothing, so there they are standing. But it, it's obvious that the, the situation is getting a little out of control. Uh, the, the lecture was uh, sponsored by Young America's Foundation, and uh, there was a very outstanding group of um, uh, students. I mean, it was a terrific audience, 300 folks. It was a really nice audience. And people's anger and frustration at what these five or six girls were doing was absolutely palpable. So... Um, uh, so here's an interesting thing. They've got a, 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 a faculty advisor on the college. I met this young woman, and um, she's a professor in the theater department at the school. And she tells me that she is uh, a conservative. I said, what? Uh, you are a tenured professor on a California campus, and you are a conservative? She says, yes, they don't know that, but I'm probably going to come out tonight. Uh, I was, of course, a liberal, she says to me, but my wife left uh, teaching and went into business, and she started paying taxes, and I began to understand what's going on. And I laughed, you know, and I said, so a, a Jewish rabbi um, is on a California campus and finds common cause with a lesbian theater professor. <laughs> Well, uh, this woman was terrific. She was really, she really handled this well. She, she certainly made no secret as to where her sympathies lay. 
And then she came up with a very good thing. While all this bedlam was going on, uh, there were a number of, of, um, of attendees who came to the stage at this point, said, can't we do something? Anyway, bottom line is she arranged for uh, these people to drift through the audience and get the word out to the audience that we are moving to an adjacent theater. Meanwhile, she got that theater set up and open. Would you believe it that um, uh, we were within five or ten minutes, we were all resituated in an adjacent theater, and um, uh, we placed individuals at the, the door, and troublemakers were kept out. This worked just fine. And uh, when, we, um, when we pick up now on this next segment, segment number three, we, uh, we are now in a completely new theater. The, uh, the audience is seated. I'm starting to talk, and there are no disruptions. The protesters were not allowed in. So I thought you might like to hear the rest of the talk. So here we go. Oh, and uh, sorry, don't forget uh, a full written account of what happened. Susan was with me, and... Uh, uh, she, she really, she had some very interesting, she actually interacted with one of the protesters. So uh, she tells you about that in writing on her Susan's Musings, which you will find at rabbidaniellappin.com. Just look for Susan's Musings and you'll get the full story there. And also take a look at the, um, uh, the, uh, the audio program, special discount download, Perils of Profanity. Your rabbi, that's me, back with you in just a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Matt Walsh. Most of the kids that are on these college campuses are extremely safe. They've been safe their whole lives. They've never encountered danger of any kind physically, yet we're so afraid. And I think there appear to be two things that young people these days are afraid of. But those two things are ideas and adulthood. And most of the problems that we're seeing in the millennial generation really comes down to that. Matt Walsh. Available on demand anytime at theblaze.com slash radio. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. <laughs> now, where were we up to? <laughs> um, I want there to be time for some questions and answers and discussion. So I'm, I'm going to try as much as possible uh, to get through my the basic material uh, that I, I was hoping to be able to give you. We've obviously had a lot of our time eaten into, but um, we're going to do our best. This is a, a good solution. Is Professor Anna Budd here? She's probably outside. Okay. Sorry? Um, no, no, no. You're you, you welcome, welcome to sit down. Okay. I'm sorry you guys have had to deal with us. I really am. It's, uh, um, so I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the honest truth. Um, I I don't usually speak on campus. It's just, it's frankly not worth it. Yeah. Um, the difference here is that uh, Young America's Foundation, YAF, um, is involved and asked me to be here. And uh, because of a relationship, when they say go, I go. That's all there is to it. So um, 
Yeah, it's just not, it's just not worth it. So I, I usually I usually speak to um, business groups, uh, people who are trying to build businesses. I speak to entrepreneurial groups. <coughs> uh, just a little while ago, Susan and I had uh, a wonderful experience. We we did a program for 1,200 female entrepreneurs in Phoenix. Uh, 1,500 female entrepreneurs in Fort Worth near Dallas, and and these are people who are trying to to figure out how to build businesses and how to make money. And obviously, what they needed to know is exactly what what you need to know, which is is it a moral thing to do? Is somehow saying I want to make money is that a moral sellout? Does that mean you are a greedy person? Does that mean you're a bad person? That's really the fundamental question. Because as I, I, I want to say, as I said, but I should have said, as I tried to say, um, the, the problem is that nobody, but nobody can succeed at anything that deep in your heart you consider to be morally reprehensible. It just doesn't work. And so as long as, uh, as, long as anybody has the deep belief that somehow what they are doing is hurting other people because that is the idea. So let me give you a, a very quick uh, insight here and that is understanding the difference between physical and spiritual. Very quickly the differences are examples. Uh, my weight is physical, my skin color is physical, how much hair you have on your head <laughs> you thought I'd say me um, is physical um, whether whether you are tall or short physical whether you are male or female physical what's spiritual your optimism your integrity your ability to bounce back from defeat your ability to pick yourself up again these are spiritual and in the majority of cases when you hire somebody for your company are you hiring for physical qualities or are you hiring for spiritual qualities and why don't we just wait for a few moments to give everybody a chance to, to sit down and make themselves comfortable some of the other gentlemen who took the initiative to find a solution to the problem. Yeah, thank thanks all. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Um, Tommy? Where's Tommy? Tommy, where's Tommy? There. Um, where is Professor Anna? She, she's still in there, all right. I just, I hope she's not being stoned or mugged or, or anything. Good. All right. And you have somebody obviously out this, outside the store as well. Good for you. Thank you. All right. Good. 
Okay, so when you just think for a moment, it doesn't matter what business you're start. You're running a software business, you're running a grocery business, you're running an accounting and bookkeeping business. You want to hire somebody. Do you really care if they're male or female? No. Do you care if they're tall or short? Do you care if they have hair on their head or they're bald? No. You don't care about any of these things. What do you care about? Skills. Spiritual. You care about integrity. Spiritual. You care about diligence. Spiritual. You care about their ability to keep on pushing even when they don't feel like it. Spiritual. Sales. I, I consider sales to be one of the finest professions in the world. Because if you've learned how to sell, you can walk into a job in any place, anywhere, anytime, if you know how to sell. Okay. These are all physical qualities. Who, these are all spiritual qualities we need. Who cares about physical qualities? If you are hiring a model for a line of swimsuits, then believe me, you need to watch out for the physical qualities. I mean, take me for example. Uh, I actually applied for a job as a swimsuit model a number of years. Jeez, I wish you wouldn't laugh when I say that. Yeah. Professor Anna, come sit down. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you. And please sit down and relax. <laughs> um, so, in, in my case, uh, I was rejected for that job, which proved to me, by the way, that anti-Semitic bigotry is still alive and well. <laughs> but um, all otherwise, when you're hiring somebody for your business, think about it. You are only interested in spiritual characteristics, not physical characteristics. Another example, a saxophone, physical or spiritual? Physical, right? Because I can weigh it in a lab. I can measure it. I can tell you it's this long. I can tell you it's made of brass. I can tell you how much it weighs. It's totally physical. How about a tune? Is a tune spiritual or physical? Spiritual, because there's no instrument in any laboratory in the world that can tell you whether a specific tune will make people cry or dance or laugh or be sad. Only the genius of a songwriter can actually do that. There's no machine in the world that can be programmed. Why don't you write us a sad song? It's not possible. It's a spiritual quality. It exists only within the brains and hearts and minds of human beings. Let us imagine that at the time when we finish here this evening, the college is going to give out a beautiful plate of the most magnificent German black forest cake for everybody. <laughs> Professor Anna? <laughs> We're not doing that, are we? We're not giving for every. No, that's not. You're right? <laughs> you see, it's, it's always like that. Fine. So, this is a thought experiment. It's not happening, but let's pretend for a moment that everybody is going to get a plate of beautiful, delicious, tasty German black forest cake.
There's only one problem, and that is that this rabbi, who's probably already had a few plates too many of German black forest cake, doesn't want just one piece, one plate today. I actually want ten. <laughs> but what's happened is there's just enough for everybody here to get a plate. So what I could do is walk down the front row. Sorry, folks, you're out of luck, because I'm going to take a plate from each of you. Just one, two, three. <laughs> Just try. <laughs> That's, <laughs> spiritual. That's good, yeah. That, that willpower is totally spiritual. I take nine plates of German black forest cake from you. I add it to mine. I now have ten. Sorry? Including your wife's plate. I took hers as well, yes. <laughs> I took her, because she shouldn't be sitting where I can see her. <laughs> and so, I've got ten. But because I have ten, there's nine people here who have none. That is what those pathetic creatures outside think about money. If, if I have $100 in my pocket, it means that there are 99 people out there who are minus a dollar. That's what they believe. Now, where does this error come from? Well, let's expand the cake example to one more example. Beautiful restaurant. It's just a little bit dark. There's no lights on. On every table, they have a teensy-weensy little candle. They think it's romantic. The trouble is, it's just so dark. I can't even enjoy my food. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Um, are we okay? Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, and so, I walk in with a whole bunch of candles under my arm. And I walk up to each of your tables, and I light one of my candles from your table, and I put the candle on the table. <coughs> By the time I'm finished, the restaurant is beautifully lit, still romantic, still candlelight, but it's not dark. Did I take anything away from any of you? I mean, I, I lit my candle from your candle. Did I take something from you? No. If anything, I've added to your enjoyment. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is whether money is more like candles or more like cake. That's the question. And if you believe that it's more like cake, then it makes perfect sense that you would want to redistribute money and make sure everyone gets the same amount. Because anyone who has more took it from somebody who obviously has less. And that's because of a very simple rule. This rule is a rule in the physical space-time continuum, which is that any physical object can only occupy one place at any given time. So, for instance, if this uh, jar of water is sitting here, and I turn my back, and by the time I turn back around, it's no longer here, but this gentleman in the front row is holding it. I think I can safely conclude that he took it away from me. Because it was here a minute ago, now it's there. I don't see a whole bunch of these around the room. There was only one. I had it, now he's got it. He took it. That's because this is physical. And if you take a physical thing from one person, 
then what you are leaving them with is a negative, a minus. You're taking it away from them. So consequently, if you live in a world where there is no spiritual reality, and please remember, I may have, it may have been hard and noisy for you to hear this. I repeat it. Spiritual doesn't mean religious, doesn't mean godly, doesn't mean virtuous. There's good spiritual, there's bad spiritual. Spiritual means very simply only one thing, that which cannot be measured in a laboratory. That's all. That's what spiritual means. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. And so, if money is only physical, then it is obvious that if you have some, it's only because me and others have less. Because something can only be a physical thing, can only be in one place at a time. If you've got it, it means I don't have it. Spiritual would be more like a tune. If uh, I have a tune, and you hear me whistling it, and the next thing is, you're all walking around whistling that same tune, am I hurt? No, I live in a now more musical world, it's a good thing. Because you cannot take spiritual things away from people. You can only take physical things away from people. And so, we need to take a look quickly, and, and I'll, I'll bring it in for a landing here so I can, I can be available to answer questions. But um, we need to look at only one thing now, and that is actually how this does work. Are there any accounting majors? Great. All right, just, just to make sure that I don't pull any rabbinic smoke and mirrors. I just want to make sure there's some watchdogs who'll be able to see that I don't pull anything fast here. Okay, uh, we're going to take a look at Grandpa Lappin. Grandpa Lappin was a peddler, okay? He used to drive his truck around from small town to small town. He'd knock on doors, do trades, uh, sometimes on one visit, uh, a housekeeper, a, wi a wife or a business. Somebody might say, hey, can you get us a this or a that? And he'd make sure that three weeks later when he came through the town or the village again, he'd have that. He, he was welcomed. He, he used to satisfy needs. So we're going to take a real quick look at a day in the life of Grandpa Lappin. And we're going to make it real short. We're going to leave out closed doors. We're going to leave out nobody home stories. We're going to make the simple straightforward. Everything works smoothly. Grandpa Lapper knocks on house number one, okay? Lady comes to the door and he says, hi, do you have anything here that you don't need? And she thinks for a moment. She says, well, uh, we do have uh, the table uh, we, we're getting rid of, old table. He says, what are you doing with it? She says, we're putting it out in the alley and on Tuesday, the city will come by and pick it up and take it away to the dump. Grandpa Lappin says, for free? She says, when does government ever do anything for free? 
<laughs> Grandpa Lappin says, you got a point. What are they charging you? She says, they're charging us $5 to take away our old table. Grandpa Lappin says, have I got a deal for you. <laughs> I will give you $5 if you help me load the, the table on my pickup. I'll give you $5. She couldn't be happier. They load the, pick the, the thing on, on Grandpa Lappin's pickup. And just before they drive away, I want to ask you all, how has the financial statement of this family improved by how much? By Grandpa Lappin knocking on their door? Ten dollars. Beautiful. When I asked this question at Harvard Business School, four of the professors said five. <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> It's right. You all got it exactly right. She no longer has to take into out of her pocket five dollars to give to the city. So she's got that five dollars back. And Grandpa Lappin gave her five. She's up ten dollars. Grandpa Lappin stops at the hardware store, pays a dollar for some paint and some nails. Nails up the wobbly leg. Paints the scratches out on the table. Knocks on the second door. Lady opens the door and he says, hi, anybody here need a table? She says, well, you know, my daughter's getting married next week. Maybe she does. We'll check with her. So they call the daughter. She comes out and they say, hey, Grandpa Lappin says, what are you doing for a table for your new home? She says, we were thinking of going to the furniture store at Ikea and getting a table. Grandpa Lappin says, how much was the table going to cost you? She says, $20 unassembled. So Grandpa Lappin says, well, out on my pickup truck, I've got a table. Now, mind you, it's used. It had a scratch. I painted it out. It had a wobbly leg. I nailed it. Um, but you could have that for $10. She says, I, what, save 50%? Of course I want to do that. Let me take a look at it. Go. She says, this is plenty good enough. They carry it into the house and leave it there. And now I need to run a quick check again. How much better off is this family because Grandpa Lappin stopped by? Also 10, right? Because they were going to pay 20, but now they only have to pay 10. You with me? Okay. So as a whole, oh, by the way, some of you are feeling sorry for IKEA. <laughs> you don't have to because nothing has changed for them. Whatever infantry they had yesterday, they've still got today. Nothing has changed. They are where they were. But family number two is up $10. Family number one is up $10. So aggregate village-wide, how, how much better off is this village? Because Grandpa Lappin swung by. Do you remember the dollar he spent at the hardware store? $21. The, the village is better off. And, and now, look, this, here's the hard question. Get this right, and I'll let you out early. <laughs> um, this question is, how much arbitrage is in Grandpa Lappin's pocket? What profit does he have? You're so good. You're so good. That's right. If you work the problem backwards, start with the second family and then do the first, you'll see how it works out. Second family gave him $10, right? He gave one of those dollars to the hardware store, so he's got nine, and he gave five to the first lady. So he's left with four, even though in reality it worked in the other sequence, the other direction, the arithmetic can work forwards or backwards, same thing. So Grandpa Lappin's better off by $4. The village is better off by $21. This is a miracle. Where did all this come from? How did this happen? It's like smoke and mirrors. No. 
Remember I told you the difference between candles and cake and the difference between tunes and saxophones? There's no limit to how many people can have the tune. And in reality, that's exactly what happens. Now, for those of you who still harbor lingering doubts about me, some of you still think I'm pulling a fast one, let me remind you that there's only one company that made money on the internet from day one, not Amazon. They lost money for seven years. But what company made money on the internet day one? Sorry? A company that lets people do what Grandpa Lappin did. eBay. eBay. Now, I checked up with eBay to see how many transactions typically are going on at any given instant on eBay. Do you know what the answer is, by the way? Anyone want to guess? 70,000 is the right answer. 70,000 uh, transactions are going on any moment on eBay. You want to know what the best definition of eBay is? 70,000 Grandpa Lappins working simultaneously. <laughs> That's all it is. What eBay or Grandpa Lappin is doing is saying, oh, something you don't need, I'll get you money for it. And then they're going to other people and say, something you need, I'll get it for you cheaper. That's what eBay does, morning, noon, and night. And guess what they have in their pocket? A little arbitrage, a little profit. That is how money is made, when human beings serve one another. That's what makes it work. When human beings serve one another, money is brought into existence. If you think that money is made when the United States Treasury runs the printing presses and produces currency, then none of us should ever be short, right? They should just run the press until we all say, oh, stop, stop, we got enough already. <laughs> but they can't do that because if you print, if you're a country and you print more money, than is equivalent to the things that human beings have done for one another in terms of goods or services, you have something called inflation, which is another way of stealing money from citizens. That's what it is. And so, um, if you... Uh, um, I mean, if you imagine... And, and maybe, maybe what I should do is, is just try and find a, a landing place on this right now, so then we can go to some of your questions and answers here. Um, so th the bottom line is, why is it moral to make money? Let me put it this way. I often ask people, do you want a lot of money? Now, a lot of people get very uncomfortable with the question. They sort of move their feet around and they sort of look down, and people are uncomfortable about saying, yes, I want a lot of money. Because they think it makes them sound greedy. They also think that the love of money is the root of all evil, etc., etc. But I never said anything about the love of money. I said, do you want a lot of money? But I didn't ask you why. If I asked you why and you said, because I love money, <laughs> then we got a problem. <laughs> but how about if I ask you, do you want a lot of money? And you say, yes. And I say, why? And you say, because it'll prove that I've served a lot of human beings. Well, now that's very interesting. So imagine, imagine that there was a nice kosher restaurant in San Mateo.
I don't think there is. <laughs> but if there was, okay, and I wanted to take my wife there for a nice big fat kosher steak and a plate of fries, I would need to do something before that. Here's what I would do. Let's imagine I'm a roofing person and I'm about to uh, go roller skating with my kids and then all of a sudden the phone goes and um, is Dr. Colson here? Where? There you are. Your kitchen starts leaking. It's raining. You call me and you say, listen, this is really miserable. The rain's coming through my roof. Could you come over quickly and do a roofing job? And I'm a just about to say, Dr. Colson, I cannot do that. I'm about to walk out of the house with my kids to go roller skating. And I thought, oh, you idiot. How could you even think of doing that? This is a great opportunity to teach my children what money's all about. And I say to her, of course I'll come over immediately. And I get my tools onto the truck. I take my kids, pack them in the back, and off we ride over to their house. We climb up on the roof, set the ladder, bring up some shingles, to fix it all up. Pretty soon, I've got the rain under control. No more rain coming into the kitchen. She's as happy as could be. And she says, that was really beautiful. Is there anything I can do for you? And I say, sure. I need some certificates of performance. She says, what are certificates of performance? I say, simple. They're little green strips of paper like this with different numbers on them. And they prove that I served you. She says, oh, I know about what you mean. I've got a bunch of those. How many do you want? I say, well, could I have a hundred, please. She says, with pleasure. I'm so relieved you came over here to take care of my roof. So I take the hundred dollars and I come running home and I say, Susan, we're in luck. We're going out tonight to um, Izzy's Kosher Grill House in San Mateo. Doesn't exist. I checked. And um, so... We run down to Izzy's kosher grill, we sit down, and uh, Izzy, I presume, walks over and says, what do you folks want? I said, we want two big, fat, juicy steaks with a plate of fries. He says, and why exactly should I go and slave over a hot stove in my kitchen just because you want to eat a steak? I say, excuse me? I thought I saw the word restaurant outside there. He says, yes, but this restaurant is only for members of a certain club. I say, really? What's the, you, what is this club about? This is a club for people who like serving other people. I say, oh, that's me. He says, really? Can you prove it? I say, sure I can. Where do you think I got these from? He says, oh, fine. I'll sit down, brings us a beautiful steak, fantastic, we eat, we enjoy it. At the end of it, I say, what can I do for you? He says, I'd like you to give me some certificates of performance. I said, sure, how many? He says, 60. No problem. Here you go. And the next day, he takes his kid to the orthodontist, and so it continues. That is the definition of money. Forget everything they told you in Econ 101. The yeah, medium of exchange, etc., etc., etc. Money is very simply evidence that you have served another human being. In other words, if any of you now or tomorrow have some money in your pocket and you absolutely did not defraud anybody and you didn't rob a little old lady and take her pocketbook and you didn't hold up a convenience store, then I know how you got that money. 
I don't even know you, but I know how you got the money. It's very simple. You pleased another child of God. You pleased another human being. That's how it works. It's very, very simple. Very simple. And so the answer, the answer is that if you've got money in your pocket and you didn't steal it or rob it or defraud anybody, you got that money. I don't know if it's your boss or your customer or your client or a relative. I don't know who gave it to you. But somebody gave it to you whom you did something for that was worth more than the money. In exactly the same way that to the second family, that table was worth much more than the $20 or the $10 that they gave for it. That is the secret of money. Making money is terrific. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I, I hope you're still there after what uh, was a longer podcast than usual, but I decided to give you my full experience at a Northern California college just a few days ago. And uh, look, there's no comments for me to make. You, you know as well as I do what's going on. Uh, the, the, the solutions, no, it's, there's no point in discussing the solutions. We're, we're so far away as a country from even being able to implement any solution yet. Uh, one, my, the only thing I came away with, the only uh, piece of optimism that I carried away was that the left can usually be counted upon to push one bridge too far. Uh, they can be counted upon to take it to a point where uh, enough people say, you know what, forget it. And that is what elected Donald Trump. Let's hope, and I mean this sincerely, let's hope the left keeps pushing from one absurdity to the next from one ridiculous thing to something even more outstandingly and brilliantly ridiculous uh, because that'll help. Uh, it'll help the rest of us try and promote a return of a culture of sanity. So until next week, all that is left is for me to remind you to visit the website, read up on what happened. Susan wrote a uh, extemporaneous account in her Susan's Musings. You'll find that at rabbidaniellappin.com. As you will, a beautiful download of a one-hour audio program I teach on communication, eloquence, the ability to articulate, articulate your ideas fluently, a little more fluently than I did just then, and all of that on the perils of profanity at rabbidaniellappin.com. So until next week, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much indeed for promoting the show, sending it to other people, encouraging other people to listen. You're doing great. And you have my blessings and wishes that you should have a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.